Chapter 6 of The Slavery of Our Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A.J. Mashinsky. The Slavery of Our Times by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Almer Maud. Chapter 6 Bankruptcy of the Socialist Ideal. But even allowing the assertion, evidently unfounded as it is, and contrary to the facts of human nature, that it is better for people to live in towns and to do compulsory machine work in factories rather than to live in villages and work freely at handicrafts, there remains in the very ideal itself, to which the men of science tell us the economic evolution is leading, an insoluble contradiction. The ideal is that the workers, having become masters of all the means of production, are to obtain all the comforts and pleasures now possessed by well-to-do people. They will all be well-clothed and housed, and well-nourished, and will all walk on electrically lighted asphalt streets, and frequent concerts and theaters, and read papers and books, and ride on autocars, etc. But that everybody may have certain things, the production of those things must be apportioned, and consequently it must be decided how long each workman is to work. How is that to be decided? Statistics may show, though very imperfectly, what people require in a society fettered by capital, by competition, and by want. But no statistics can show how much is wanted, and what articles are needed to satisfy the demand in a society where the means of production will belong to the society itself, namely, where the people will be free. The demands in such a society cannot be defined, and they will always infinitely exceed the possibility of satisfying them. Everybody will wish to have all that the richest now possesses, and therefore it is quite impossible to define the quantity of goods that such a society will require. Furthermore, how are people to be induced to work at articles which some consider necessary and others consider unnecessary or even harmful? If it be found necessary for everybody to work, say, six hours a day in order to satisfy the requirements of the society, who, in a free society, can compel a man to work those six hours if he knows that part of the time is spent on producing things he considers unnecessary or even harmful? It is undeniable that under the present state of things, most varied articles are produced with great economy of exertion thanks to machinery, and thanks especially to the division of labor, which has been brought to an extreme nicety, and carried to the highest perfection, and that these articles are profitable to manufacturers and that we find them convenient and pleasant to use. But the fact that these articles are well made and are produced with little expenditure of strength and that they are profitable to the capitalists and convenient for us does not prove that free men would, without compulsion, continue to produce them. There is no doubt that Krupp, with the present division of labor, makes admirable cannons very quickly and artfully, and M very quickly and artfully produces silk materials, X, Y, and Z produce toilet scents, powder to preserve the complexion, or glazed packs of cards, and K produces whiskey of choice flavor, etc. And, no doubt, both for those who want these articles and for the owners of the factories in which they are made, all this is very advantageous. But cannons and scents and whiskey are wanted by those who wish to obtain control of the Chinese market, or who like to get drunk, or are concerned about their complexions. But there will be some who consider the production of these articles harmful. And there will always be people who consider that, besides these articles, exhibitions, academies, beer, and beef are unnecessary and even harmful. How are these people to be made to participate in the production of such articles? 
but even if a means could be found to get all to agree to produce certain articles, though there is no such means, and can be none except coercion, who, in a free society, without capitalistic production, competition, and its law of supply and demand, will decide which articles are to have the preference, which are to be made first, and which after? Are we first to build the Siberian Railway and fortify Port Arthur, and then macadamize the roads in our country districts, or vice versa? Which is to come first, electric lighting or irrigation of the fields? And then comes another question, insoluble with free workmen. Which men are to do which work? Evidently, all will prefer haymaking or drying to stoking or cesspool cleaning. How, in apportioning the work, are people to be induced to agree? No statistics can answer these questions. The solution can only be theoretical. It may be said that there will be people to whom power will be given to regulate all these matters. Some people will decide these questions, and others will obey them. But besides the questions of apportioning and directing production, and of selecting work, when the means of production are communalized, there will be another and most important question. As to the degree of division of labor that can be established in a socialistically organized society. The now existing division of labor is conditioned by the necessities of the workers. A worker only agrees to live all his life underground, or to make the one hundredth part of one article all his life, or move his hands up and down amid the roar of machinery all his life, because he will otherwise not have means to live. But it will only be by compulsion that a workman owning the means of production, and not suffering want, can be induced to accept such stupefying and soul-destroying conditions of labor as those in which people now work. Division of labor is undoubtedly very profitable and natural to people. But, if people are free, division of labor is only possible up to a certain, very limited, extent, which has been far overstepped in our society. If one peasant occupies himself chiefly with bootmaking, and his wife weaves, and another peasant plows, and a third is a blacksmith, and they all, having acquired special dexterity in their own work, afterwards exchange what they have produced, such division of labor is advantageous to all, and free people will naturally divide their work in this way. But a division of labor by which a man makes one one-hundredth of an article, or a stoker works in 140 degrees Fahrenheit of heat, or is choked with harmful gases, such division of labor is disadvantageous, because though it furthers the production of insignificant articles, it destroys that which is most precious, the life of man. And therefore such division of labor, as now exists, can only exist where there is compulsion. Rodbertus says that communal division of labor unites mankind. That is true, but it is only free division, such as people voluntarily adopt, that unites. If people decide to make a road, and one digs, another brings stones, a third breaks them, etc., that sort of division of work unites people. But if independently of the wishes, and sometimes against the wishes of the workers, a strategical railway is built, or an Eiffel Tower, or stupidities, such as fill the Paris exhibition, and one workman is compelled to obtain iron, another to dig coal, a third to make castings, a fourth to cut down trees, and a fifth to saw them up, without even having the least idea of what the things they are making are wanted for, then such a division of labor not only does not unite men, but, on the contrary, it divides them. And, therefore, with communalized implements of production, if people are free, they will only adopt division of labor in as far as the goods resulting will outweigh the evil it occasions to the workers. 
and as each man naturally sees good in extending and diversifying his activities such division of labor as now exists will evidently be impossible in a free society to suppose that with communalized means of production there will be such an abundance of things as is now produced by compulsory division of labor is like supposing that after the emancipation of the serfs the domestic orchestras and theaters the homemade carpets and laces and the elaborate gardens which depended on serf labor would continue to exist as before so that the supposition that when the socialist ideal is realized everyone will be free and will at the same time have at his disposal everything or almost everything that is now made use of by the well-to-do classes involves an obvious self-contradiction end of chapter six of the slavery of our times recording by a j mishinsky